Welcome, everyone, to episode 66 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton. On this week's episode of the podcast, you might have thought we would be reviewing Frozen 2, but Scott Harvey hates animated movies, so congratulations. He prefers to watch real cinema instead. That's right. We'll be reviewing actual cinema this week, everyone. I know you've been waiting for literally a year and a half for us (laughs) to do this. Uh, We are reviewing... Uh, a, a movie that most of you won't even see at the cinema yet. We are reviewing it. Uh, and that is, of course, Martin Scorsese's magnum opus, at least in terms of length, The Irishman. Uh, before we get to any of that, though, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? It's funny that you say I hate animated movies, considering my number one movie of the decade was an animated movie. So yeah. log off. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm good, Scott. Uh, I'm back in Tennessee, as are you, um, for the Thanksgiving holidays. Um, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm looking forward to an extended time here. I, I actually don't have to go back to school for a little bit. So I'm going to be here for about 10 days, which is good. Um Ooh. Yeah, and uh, you know, looking forward to talking about this movie. Made it through all three and a half hours last night, um, and it was quite an experience. Uh, and I'm looking forward to catching up with some other movies um, while I'm home on break. Maybe, maybe I will get to Frozen too. Definitely want to try to see Mr. Rogers' movie as well. And uh, we're going to be checking out Knives Out tomorrow. So, yeah, excited to Knives Out's our token movie that we see together this year. Uh, so yeah. that's very well. Exciting. We saw John Wick three together. Um, and yeah, and we saw. Did we see Booksmart together too? Yes, yeah, we did. That was your second time, but yeah. Yeah, no, that was good. But um, I feel like there's always one movie this time of year that we see together. And at least for Thanksgiving, it's going to be Knives Out. Maybe at Christmas, we'll see what it is. It probably won't be Star Wars. Uh, but maybe we'll see like Bombshell or something together. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, no, I, I also saw The Irishman at, at the cinema uh, over the weekend. And it is, it's a bear. It's a bear of three and a half hours in length. The the year of the long movie, uh I guess uh, Net- has culminated with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Netflix got the message. <laughs> they also yeah, they they're, they're in on the bit. Yeah, they really are. Uh, but all right, Scott. You know, we film Twitter, the media in general have probably been talking too much about Martin Scorsese recently, and that's because most of it hasn't been about his films. But luckily today, we can put all that nonsense behind us and talk about his first film since 2016, Silence, and that is The Irishman. The Irishman, which languished in development hell for years, finally got the green light from your friendly neighborhood Netflix, who reportedly shelled out between $150 and $200 million to to de-age and also age, in some instances, the hell out of its three central performers, Robert De Niro, who is the titular Irishman, Frank Sheeran, Al Pacino, who plays the labor union leader, Jimmy Hoffa, and Joe Pesci, who dons the persona of real-life mafioso, Russell Buffalino. The Irishman reflects on and charts the adult life of its lead Irishman as he rises to prominence within the Buffalino crime family, meets and befriends the likes of Hoffa, is forced to choose his allegiances between Hoffa and the Buffalino crime family, and then finally come to terms with the arc of his life, his choices, and their consequences. Scott, did Scorsese artfully construct his tale of Frank Sheeran painting houses, or was the Irishman a bloated 219 minutes full of the same blood and thunder of some of Scorsese's 
recent media comments. Scott, I will correct myself there. 209 minutes, not yeah, 219. That's what I thought. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Scott, whatever you define cinema as, and I think what Scorsese's comments have, have caused us really to confront that question of what do we consider uh, cinema to be? But I think even under the narrowest of definitions, uh, the Irishman is cinema. Uh, it is a Scorsese classic and it is a masterpiece. Um, I wasn't sure whether I was going to love the movie. Obviously, I'm a little uh, lukewarm on Scorsese because of the comments. Three and a half hours. Not something I was looking forward to sitting through, especially because it's the longest movie that I've ever sat through in a theater. I think Endgame was the record. Uh, also a movie from this year. Uh, but of course, Scorsese had to out cinema Marvel, um, and so he had to throw an extra twenty-five minutes in there uh, to beat out Endgame, even if he won't beat out Endgame in terms of the financial returns uh, of The Irishman. Um, but this movie is fantastic, um, and Scorsese's uh, artistry is all over the canvas here. Um, I think, as great as the performances are, we'll talk about you know the three main ones you, you've mentioned there. Uh, I think that. This is Scorsese's movie, and um, as much as certain parts feel, you know, familiar, um, I think that it, particularly in the first half of the movie, you know, it definitely shares a lot of similarities with movies like Goodfellas, Goodfellas and Casino, with um, this guy, you know, slowly getting embroiled deeper and deeper into um, sort of a criminal underworld. But I think it also examines some themes. Um, that we don't see in some of Scorsese's other movies, particularly in the back half. Um, and uh, for, first of all, I'll say, I think that this movie should put to rest any notion that uh, Scorsese glorifies the mob or organized crime with his films, which is something that a lot of Marvel fans have accused him of in the in the whole wake of this thing. I think this movie will put that to bed once and for all. For, cer certainly Goodfellas in Casino, um, I think, if, if that's what those people thought about those movies and they were missing the point. But there's pretty much no way you can miss the point with The Irishman here. Um, but I think that this is also a movie that, you know, kind of reflects where Scorsese in and his, is in his life. In, in that way, it kind of... Um, Reminds me a little bit of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And we talked about how uh, Tarantino was kind of um, making a movie about um, himself in a way and his own sort of fading relevance, perhaps, um, in in Hollywood culture. And I think the same is true of Scorsese. This is a movie about aging and um, and it, it's it's a movie about mortality for sure. I mean that that is uh, sprinkled all over throughout this movie to the point where you know we meet random characters in the movie and. You know, the, all we really learn about them is how they die, uh, and uh, that, how many times they were shot in the head in an alleyway. Yes, exactly, uh, and that you know that goes sort of to this whole idea that we'll get into, you know. But everyone dies, right? And and the question is, how are you going to live your life, um, and and what are you going to do to make sure that when you do die, you know, you are fulfilled? Um, and I don't know that that's necessarily explored. Um, in the in some of Scorsese's other movies, or if it is, um, I don't think we get it in the context of a character like Frank Sheeran, who, you know, he's older, first of all, when he even gets involved in the criminal world. He's not as young as like Henry Hill was in Goodfellas. But he, he's also telling this story. Um, you know, the, the movie is branched by the, the narrative of Frank in a nursing home, basically, um, at a very old age, telling this story and um, looking back on it. Um, and so, so that is an element of the movie as well, which, you know, isn't 
isn't found in Goodfellas or Casino or some of these other mob movies. Um, but yeah, this is a movie that absolutely everyone should see. Um, whether you're a Scorsese fan or not, even if you're the most passionate Marvel fanboy, um, and you think Scorsese should rot in hell um, for his comments, you should still see this movie because um, it is incredibly well made. It, it is impeccably crafted. O only tore in maybe the last 15 minutes or so did I start to think uh, that I was ready for the movie to be over. Did, 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 was I no longer swept up in the movie? And even then it was, it was very minor. Um, and yeah, it, it is, it is the work of a great artist. And, and that is why, you know, going back to the comments once more, it's so disappointing to see Scorsese. First of all, he, he, he shouldn't care what anyone thinks um, about movies at all, because he, when you, when you can make art this great, you shouldn't care what mere mortals think. And second of all, um, because he is such a great artist and this is just the latest example, um, it's a shame that he couldn't use his platform for good. Um, but with that in mind, um, I, I think uh, I, I don't want to say too much about the comments because ultimately I was able to separate the art from that. And uh, I'm glad that I was able to do so because this is one of the outstanding films of the year. Yeah, I'll try to steer clear of bring, we'll, we'll try to steer clear of bringing up the comments for, from here on out. But no, I think that one of the things that was that endured over the entire three and a half hour runtime and it it really gets all of its three and a half hours because the credits are very short for this film. Uh, but I I think that one of the things that endures is the fact that Martin Scorsese is a really captivating filmmaker. You know, as uninteresting, I found some parts of this very long story that easily could have had 30, 45 minutes, even an hour cut out of it, I think, and still captured a lot of the key themes. I think that as, as maybe uninteresting as I found the story, the filmmaking and the performances really drag you in and, and keep your eyes on the screen, right? You can feel, I, I shouldn't say you, I felt the length of the film in it. I felt like it was long. At the same time, I didn't necessarily think like, okay, you know, I really want to get out of here uh, because that's how good of a storyteller Martin Scorsese is when he's crafting his narrative on the screen. Uh, one of the thing, things that I want to briefly touch on it now, and we will touch on it later, uh, just to get my one like one main criticism out of the way is that I think that, and it's not fair to probably not that fair to say this, but it's just what I thought the whole time is that I feel like I'd seen the first three hours of this movie many times before from Martin Scorsese. Um, and I think that the movie only got really interesting in the last 20 minutes and what he was able to do, put that new spin of his perspective on it. Yes. You, you get very small, uh, a very small trickle of that sprinkled in throughout when you remember that the story is being told by Frank Sheeran in a nursing home to your point. Right. But I think one of the key things here for me is that like, you know, why is the story being told from, from Frank Sheeran's perspective in a nursing home? Why, why is that the important perspective uh, uh, that we're that the story is being told from? And I really wish that we could have gotten more of that sprinkled in throughout the movie. Cause I think that I would have been even more engaged and been more interested in what was happening because yes, it's really easy to, not, not, not necessarily really easy, but it is there to, you know, watch that first 180 minutes and then get that shift and towards, you know, fully being in, in the present tense, so to speak, of that nursing home portion and then have him reflect on everything that happened and whatnot. I won't go. We won't go into spoilers yet about what happens and how he's feeling about that there. But that's it's that emotional hook that that I need that I feel like I would have appreciated even more if it had come earlier and been sprinkled more throughout because 
you know, there have been a lot of complaints about this film not really having a present female character, uh, not really having any sort of female performances whatsoever relative to, um, of course, Pesci, Pacino, and De Niro. That being said, I think that is the point. Uh, I think that is what <laughs> yeah. Scorsese was going for. But I will say, you know, that critique aside, as much as I dis- I think I disregard that critique, I think this movie might have been better if you got a little bit more uh, from his from his family. But I understand what Scorsese was going for uh, with his particular approach and showing that very male-focused perspective on everything. And then, again, going back to that last 20 minutes and thinking about what the effect that that male-focused perspective had uh, on other characters who are very much in the background uh, through the majority of the film. But oftentimes, whenever I saw these female characters uh, come on the screen in the first three hours, I thought that, you know, I really would like to get to know these these characters a little bit better. That being said, I want to say I recognize that's not the point of the movie and not what Scorsese is going for uh, in this particular story. And so I, I don't put too much stock in that criticism. But I think that I also, again, going back to the point where like, if you're going to keep your audience really interested and engaged for three and a half hours... I think that I would have felt a little bit more interested uh, and maybe a little bit even more engaged if I'd gotten more from, you know, the the family members, like the entirely female family members of Frank Sheeran. Um, so that, that, that's one of the, that, that's a, that's a critique. And, and I want to get it out of the way now because there's just so much that's great about this film. I mean, the filmmaking perspective, uh, the story that it's telling, although I do think it's long, I think it's a, it's an engaging story, right? Like you're very interested in, in this very long arc, even though it starts kind of later in life uh, relative to what you might normally expect from a mob movie telling a kind of an epic tale. It starts later in life, but you really get the full range of this rise and, um, you know, I guess ambiguous. We'll put rise and then the end of the story uh, for for Frank Sheeran's character. And, you know, of course, befriending Russell Buffalino, bef- you know, befriending Jimmy Hoffa and what becomes of all of that. I, th- I think that that is incredibly engaging and uh i just thought it was interesting that the most interesting parts of the movie were what for me was the very end um when there were parts where i felt like my interest lagged a little bit oh and also the performances from pesci pacino de niro i mean just incredible incredible stuff yeah no i mean i think there's there's always going to be places where your interests lag in a a movie this long but i think i just prepared myself very well going into it because I knew that it was the longest movie I'd ever seen in a theater. And so yeah. I was like, look, no matter what, you're, you're going to be sitting there at some point, you're going to think this movie's really long and you're still going to have an hour and a half to go probably. Um, but with, that, with that being said, I was, you know, I was very swept away by the story. I mean, it is an epic story. I think it is a story that needs to be told over an extended running time. And so I, while the movie was long and of course I did feel the length, um, I, I wasn't that bothered by it again, maybe because I prepared myself well. Now I don't, I, I, I did think about like if I had watched this movie on Netflix, for example, would I have watched it in, in you know, a couple of sittings? And the answer is probably yes. Cause that's how I watch a lot of stuff, but I am glad that I got to have the, the, this cinematic experience, see the whole thing uh, together as it was meant to be seen probably. Yeah. And that's so interesting that you say that as it was meant to be seen, because I just, it, this is one of those films. I mean, you, you could even, I know Tar- this is often talked about like Tarantino putting, you know, the uh, hateful aid. And I think they're going to do this with once upon a time in Hollywood as well, putting a longer cut of the, of it, uh, a director's cut, so to speak, which is probably what essentially what Martin Scorsese got to do with the Irishman is make a director's yeah. cut. Um, and, you know, get to put the full thing in episodic format on Netflix. And I think that, you know, there's really no reason. I think as much as I am a purist and like to watch cinema, 
cinema. I say that <laughs> non-jokingly this time, uh, but li- like to watch movies in one sitting because that's just kind of the person that I am. I like doing that. Um, I know that n- there's obviously no reason that everyone needs to like to do that if you have the option of doing it in multiple sittings, but I like to do that. And uh, even I felt like that it wasn't necessary to watch this film in one sitting because it, it, you know, there, there's this weird moment at the beginning of the film where there's the fir- there's a first couple shots and then you have this screen overlay of I hear you paint houses and you think like all right well we're literally going to get like episodic parts of this film and yeah. I don't think uh, you get a single other instance where uh, an inter uh, an overlay shot comes on a screen to like denote another chapter and so I'm also just like why was this first part not even on on I don't even know it doesn't matter it's not even a real critique it's the actually. name of the book that it's based on I, I mean that doesn't really uh provide any context. I guess for what you're talking yeah. about, but it, that is the name of the book. No, yeah, and again, I, I get and it. It's not, it's, you know, and Hoffa says the line to him, but other than that, yeah, yeah. I, I, again, and it's not a real critique. It's more just like this. This is a film that could easily have been a miniseries, right? Like, it's yeah, not. Sure. And I think that plenty of people will watch this. In there, that. Are, there are many series that are shorter than this film. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, yeah, for sure. Especially some of those twenty or thirty minute shows that only have eight episodes on HBO. Uh, yeah, no, I think that this is it. It could have easily been episodic, and you don't, and you don't need to watch this. Uh, and on the relative spectrum of things, you don't need to watch this in one sitting. And it, it would be difficult for me to watch this in one sitting uh, if I were sitting in front of my computer at home and watching it on Netflix. But I did have that luxury of getting to see it in a the theater, so I'm glad that I could prove that I could endure three and a half yeah. hours in a movie theater same it was a good test of stamina i think yeah. i only had to pee twice yeah i mean i i fasted before this movie basically both food <laughs> and liquid fair uh, yeah uh, but anyway i think going from that you know we've both briefly already alluded to the three central characters of course that being uh robert de niro's irishman and, and frank sheeran joe pesci's uh, mafioso russell buffalino and then Al Pacino's Jimmy Hoffa. Scott, do you want to talk about all three of these guys? Or uh, even if you do want to talk about all three of these guys, I'd love to hear from you who you think the standout of the three is. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I do want to give a mention to each of them. I, I will give my MVP to Pesci uh, because I think he's the one playing most against type here. I think that um, De Niro is playing a classic De Niro character. He's the straight man. Um, he's this, you know, sort of soft-spoken guy who can erupt into these shocking moments of violence at times. Even even before he gets involved uh, in the mob or, or you know, with the organized crime and Jimmy Hoffa and all that, this violent side is there. You know, we see the scene with him and his daughter Peggy when she's very young, and he, the grocer, has shoved her, and he takes her down to the the grocery store, and and you know brutally kicks this man um the grocer in the street which by the way is the one moment where the cgi looks really weird in the movie um because you have like a 70 year old robert de niro like a 70 year old robert de niro's body stomping a man curb stomping but it's made to look like he's 30 yeah yeah he just doesn't move like a 30 year old man uh it it looks like a video game in a way and i mean and and honestly that was my first impression of his face that it looked like a video game when you first see it, the de-aging. But after that, you barely even notice it. Uh, well, to, yeah, and to that to that point, I think that because there only are a few scenes from the very right, earliest stages, very yeah. and those are where it looks the most wrong, <laughs> like yeah. not not realistic. And you know that scene in particular is one that stands out. But I found that that did go away, and I don't know if it's because I got used to the way it was looking, or the de-aging was just simply looked better. Uh, in like sort of the middle and later sequences of the film when they're of course slightly closer to the current age but it really only looked bad in those earliest sequences i mean it really reminded me of of what tarkin looked like in 
in Rogue One. Yeah. Um, but oh, again, what, like, what a young Will Smith looked like at the very end of Gemini Man on the college campus, which was, wow, his face was barely connected to the rest of his body. Um, but yeah, De Niro is fantastic. I think, um, you know, as much as it is a pitch down the middle for him, I, at least, it, you know, for the for that first three hours of the movie or so it is. But I think that, you know, we we get um, uh, something a little different at the end of the movie that you're talking about. There's there's a real pain in his performance because he's really coming to terms with the legacy that he has left. And he's having to, you know, face the consequences of all the choices that he has made during this period in his life. And uh, he's, you know, he's he's faced with a lot of regret and um it's interesting, you know, it's, he, he conveys the, the, the pain and regret really well. And it's also interesting to think about, you know, cause De Niro is just at a similar age um, of the character. So I, you know, yeah. you, you have to wonder how much of his own um, life and how much of his own experiences does he bring into this performance? Because um, he's sensational. Does he regret the cinema he made with Martin Scorsese in his earlier years? <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, maybe if Probably you want not. to read a lot into it. But as yeah. for Pacino, so I think once again, this is this is another classic Pacino performance. And he's, you know, ranting and raving as Pacino does. And there were times when I felt like I were I was like, I'm not watching Jimmy Hoffer right now, I'm watching Al Pacino. Um, but I think that actually as you know, Pacino does what he does, but I think that the strength of this performance is actually in the way that he's directed by Martin Scorsese, because we, when we first meet this character, right, he's, like I say, he's, he's ranting and raving. He's making these big speeches, but he's very magnanimous. He's swaying the public. He has everyone behind him, people chanting his name. Um, you know, he's a hero. He's one of the most well-known people in the country as, as De Niro's character makes clear at, at various points. Uh, but then, right, he goes to jail and he's there for five years. And when he comes out, he's the same guy, but the world has completely changed. Right. And so we because of the way Scorsese directs the character, we see him in a completely different light, even though he's still the same guy, even though he's still shouting and ra ranting and raving about certain things, just like this character was doing before he went to jail. Now he seems like, you know, this tired, out of touch old man um, who, you know, the, the world has moved on from the kinds of things he believes in, or at least the approach that he is taking to achieving um, what, you know, the, the, the things that he believes in and, and that Jimmy Hoffa's um, way of winning over the people can no longer win over the people. And he can't understand that. And he, he never comes to understand that throughout the course of the movie. Um, but so, so that's, that's what I mean when I say, I think Scorsese directs him incredibly well here because he, he takes the you know the tropes and the classic elements of a Pacino performance, and he twists the way that we see them as the movie goes on. Because again, a lot of the movie is about coming to terms with legacy, and I think that that's true not only of the De Niro character, but also of the Pacino character, who again finds himself in this unfamiliar world, all of a sudden in this world that has moved on from him in these five years, and he just he can't come to terms with that. He's he's a bitter old man. Yeah, um, and that's exactly the I mean you see that laid out on screen so well in multiple scenes, but ultimately the key conflict that kind of leads to the, cl the climactic scene is this, you know, you have these two people, one of whom has come to terms with the legacy that he's leaving, or is at least right. not, or at least not resisting it. And of course you have to your point, you know, this character, Al Pacino, Jimmy Hoffa, who like actively, you know, fights, you know, tooth and nail against it. And is, you know, that, crockety old man to your point.
Yeah, and I think part of the interesting thing is too that like Pacino's character, by the time De Niro comes to terms with things, like he he can't do anything about it. But Pacino's character Hoffa, he has a chance to you know change things. Like the, his confrontations with uh, Tony, who is the guy who is sort of his competitor for you know, reassuming the head of the Teamsters Union, right? the president of the Teamsters Union. And he has um, various, or he's not his competitor, but he's he's someone who has become very influential in the union. And there are various scenes where Jimmy needs to win his support and basically needs his endorsement in order to ascend to president of the Teamsters Union, ascend to that position again. And he can't get over his prejudices and, um, you know, his his stubbornness and the way that he feels about this character uh, in order to win his support. Um, and so he has these moments, unlike, unlike Frank in a way, I mean, Fr- Frank does have these moments, uh, but unlike uh, Jimmy has more explicit moments where he has a chance to change um, his legacy and, and adapt to the world around him. And he just can't do so. Uh, as for Pesci, who I did say, I think is the standout. I think, like I said, he's playing against type here because usually he's as colorful as Pacino is in these types of movies. Uh, you know, you think about that character in Goodfellas. He he just jumped off the screen and, uh, you know, got an Academy Award for that performance. Uh, here, that's not this character at all. He is he's quiet. He's he's menacing for sure. There's 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 a menace to this character all the way. But he's kind of like this fixer, right? Like he's the guy that you call. in. He's the super cool, composed guy who you call in to sort of clean things up between uh, organizations. Between yeah, he's unions, friends with everyone. Organized crime, right? Um, and and that's you know he he's the he's Frank's ticket into this whole world. Um, he he meets him at the gas station and then you know encounters him again, and it goes in in, in a different context, and it goes on from there. And this character. Mm-hmm. You know, my friend who I saw the movie with said to me afterwards, he was like, I wish we had gotten more of him. It felt like there was moments um, in the middle of the movie where it was just De Niro and Pacino together. And I I think that it's necessary for that. But um, I think that even when he's not on screen, like his presence is always felt um, in the background. And I I think uh, Pesci, you know, came out of retirement for this role. He hasn't acted in anything in a long time. Um, And I think it was worth the wait because I think uh, we see that he his perhaps his performances ha- he has matured as an actor um and is able to give this character the sort of understated tone that it really needs to work in so i think while all three actors excel he's probably i probably give it to him by a hair as far as the mvp ray romano yeah, no, I, too, though. yeah no, i was gonna say uh, there are some other supporting members of the cast uh, of course ray, ray romano and harvey Keitel have their bobby Kennedy, have their brief ray, moments yeah. Bobby Cannavale, Stephen, you were talking about Stephen Graham with with the Tony Pro character, yeah, um, who's who's pretty good as well. But I'm in, I'm with you, man. I think Joe Pesci is the one. I was reading reviews after I saw the the film and saw a lot of people talking about Al Pacino, and I think there's, you know, I think that it's hard to go wrong, right? Like I'm not going to argue with anyone who says any one of these characters is is the best because they're all so good. But for me, I don't even know that I had to think about it too hard, even because I just think what Pesci is doing. It, if we're talking about what interested me the most, his character is what interested me the most. You know, you don't, I don't feel like I've seen that many of this type of character in Scorsese's movies that, you know, you're not often getting that mediator that kind of is friends with everyone sits between uh, people, especially in such a prominent role in, in a way that uh, you, like you said, you feel his presence in every scene almost uh, in the background. Of course, after you meet him, that is. And that's something that I really liked. And I think that is, important because ultimately you know you're talking i talked about you know having to choose allegiances kind of in the in the primer for this discussion like 
De Niro's Sheeran, the Irishman, he has to choose allegiances be- essentially between Russell Buffalino and he has to, uh, and Jimmy Hoffa, and he has to he has to go the way that, that he feels is the, is the right is the right way for him. And I think that you get that through the physical presence of Al Pacino on screen and all that middle portion of the film to what you're talking about here. And you get it from Russell Buffalino by the fact that his presence is so strong throughout the film, even when he's not on screen. And, you know, if you had a different person playing uh, this character, I'm not sure that you feel the presence in the same way and get get that same type of feel, right? There's plenty of people who who can be, you know, magnanimous, to use your word the way you were describing Jimmy Hoffa earlier, and, and be a presence when he's not on screen. But I don't know how many actors can pull off this performance in this way to where it can be almost understated and still have the presence uh, off yeah. off screen. I don't know if Pacino could have done it to your point. <laughs> I don't think Pacino could have done it. I don't even know. I don't think De Niro could have done it either. And honestly, I didn't know the Pesci could do it, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, but he did it. And so for me, you know, in, in a mix of performances, uh, and when we're talking about Pacino and De Niro that feel, uh, this isn't a criticism, but we've often leveled it at Tom Hanks and the people that feel very similar to what you're getting from them and other performances. Joe Pesci's feels different. And in that way, it stood out in a really positive way. Even if you have, even if there's plenty of positive things uh, that I'd echo your sentiments around De Niro's performance, especially those last 20 to 30 minutes uh, and including, I'd say Joe Pesci's performance in the last 20, 30 minutes too. I mean, you talk about that understated menacing nature of his performance for the first three hours and the few shots that you get of him, uh, of course, not necessarily in the present day, but a little bit moved on past mm-hmm. that. I think that is a really interesting juxtaposition, even though it's only a couple minutes, I think is is a really interesting juxtaposition uh, to how that character is, is portrayed uh, before the climax of the film. And so I, I really enjoyed Joe Pesci's performance in particular. Uh, I'd echo, your, like I said already, I, I would echo what you said about De Niro and, and Pacino. I think uh, Pacino would, I don't know, like all these performances are so good, so it's almost unfair to rate them on a scale, but I think Pacino's performance probably comes in last for me just because it, 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 I, it really did feel what you were saying earlier about how it felt like I was just watching Al Pacino. Um, and yeah. I did feel like De Niro was still able to disappear into the role of Frank Sheeran better, uh, at least than Al Pacino was able to, to do so for Jimmy Hoffa. But again, that's, it's barely a criticism because the performance is still so strong. Um, uh, but that's, that's how I was feeling. I don't know if you have any other thoughts, but we can also kind of move on to that. Um, finale of the film so to yeah, speak let's do it uh, yeah let's so why not like we've been alluding to it and uh, to be honest we've probably uh, not danced around too well spoilers for this film but of course the climax of the film does come uh, robert de niro's uh irishman frank sheeran he's basically asked to uh kill jimmy hoffa to to kill his very close friend this person who he, he got to give this award uh, to him, this kind of lifetime achievement award, so to speak. Uh, and, he, you know, he's told that, you know, look, Jimmy Hoffa's not falling in line with the way that he needs to. He's pushing back against too many of the wrong people. He's ruffling too many feathers, especially Russell Buffalino. And uh, he has to he has to pay for that uh, after so many attempts to to kind of let him course correct and and make amends. And uh, it's Frank that has to has to do that. He has to paint that house. And that is that is what he does. And I think that as m- clear as it was that that scene was coming, I think the the way that the scene is shot and, and the moment that it happens was still really impactful to me. And then to have that transition into those reflective moments in the last 20 to 25 minutes of the film, Scott, that's what I want to talk about now. And because I think if, if there's something that would sell you on this film besides if you just love a good, you know, 
uh, Scorsese mob movie. It's this it's this new element that you were alluding to earlier that you felt like was, you know, whether it's Scorsese looking back at his own career to some extent, whether it's just him trying to evolve the, the genre that, you know, he really made his own. And I think that this is what was the most interesting part of the movie for me. And do you think that this sort of reflection on uh, of, De- of, you know, De Niro's Frank Sheeran on his own actions, does that work for you? Does, you know, him looking back over his legacy uh, work for you? Does his relationship with his family and where that ends up at the end of the film, does that work for you? What, how do you feel about these things? Yeah, I think it really works. I mean, we've talked about, I think, how Pacino's performance and Pacino's character flirts with this idea of, you know, the world moving on with him and what, what is his legacy going to be? Um, but I think that, you know, you, obviously you get that hammered home with the De Niro character. Like I said before, I think this movie, d- death is such a present figure throughout this entire movie, whether it's, you know, the subtitle um, subtitles coming up when you meet certain people, whether it's all the people that um, either Frank kills or that, people in his sphere um, have to kill. It's such a present force. And, um, you know, Joe Pesci's character and and Russell and, and Frank are able to elude it. Um, but when they get to the end of their lives, they're forced to look back and think, you know, did we really, are, are we fulfilled? Did we really live our lives the way that um, we we wanted to? And the answer is, is no in the in Frank's case. And a lot of that does come with the family aspect of the movie. Um, I think his family is very much in the background for the entire for the entirety of the movie. Um, and you know, there's a reason for that because he has put his business and he has put um, his association with all of these you know, with, with Hoffa and Russell. And he, he's put that before his family. His family is something that he has sacrificed and particularly his daughter, right. Who we see at various ages throughout the movie. She's played by Anna Paquin um, when she is older and she's this sort of like omnipresent figure who never says anything, right. She, she has one line in the movie. Um, And that's because she says everything with, with her face. Like she's, she sees everything. She's the person who knows everything that is going on. Um, But Frank never gives her the time of day really. And, um, and and so as a result, when he gets to the end of his life, he's alone, right? Everyone, all of the people that he chose to associate with, they've all died. Like that the FBI agents literally say that to him. They're like, Frank, everyone is dead. Um, Like, who are you covering? Who, who are you covering for? What are you? Why are you? Why are you still hiding what you're hiding? Why won't you just tell us the story? Uh, and it's because he doesn't know how, right? This is how he has chosen to spend his entire life, you know, in, embroiled in this world, embroiled in this secrecy, always covering up for someone. Um, and w- even when everyone is dead, he can't come to terms with it. He can't uh, bring himself really to tell them uh, what they want to know. Um, and I think that. Um, the, you know, it, it all builds right to the to this final shot, which is, I mean, cinema, um, the, the final shot of the movie with Frank just sitting there alone in his hospital room tells um, the priest basically to keep the, the and I mean, then that's another aspect, right? He starts like all of a sudden going to a priest and there's this whole scene about him, you know, saying that he doesn't really feel sorry about anything that he's done. Um, and so, he, the, you know, the priest is leaving and Frank tells him to leave the door open, you know, as if someone is going to come along um, and, you know, visit him 
but no one's going to come along. And so the last shot we see is him just sitting there with the door cracked open alone in his hospital room. And that's just an incredible haunting shot. But we also have this scene, I think, that sort of sums it all up uh, after he has killed Jimmy Hoffa, right? And he has to call um, Jimmy Hoffa's wife on the phone. And you want to talk about like acting, like De Niro's performance in this scene is astonishing, um, where he's on the phone with Jimmy Hoffa's wife. Of course, he knows what um, he, he knows what he's done, right? He knows what's happened to Jimmy, but no one else knows. His wife certainly doesn't know. Um, and what we see is it is like him struggling to get the words out because not not only because he knows what's happened, but because he doesn't know what it's like to empathize with or to to really feel emotion in the way that. Jimmy's wife is feeling emotion. She needs Joe. Joe's her yes, name. Joe. Right. She she needs someone to lean on, and De Niro doesn't know how to be that person because he's never been that person, particularly for a female character, right? Um, and so his his inability to even like speak a coherent thought in this scene, you know, really says it all. And um, again, the family aspect we see that throughout the movie, like e- even with the Joe Pesci character, even with Russell. He, like Peggy, will not even give him the time of day at any point in the movie um, because, like, she knows, right? The, the, he has no way of connecting with um, with Peggy because he doesn't have a family of his own. He, he again, he's given himself to this particular life. Um, and as a result, um, both he and Frank, they don't know how to interact with their families. All of the scenes when they try to talk to Peggy are just completely awkward and and cringeworthy because they 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 don't know how to have even have a simple conversation with her um and that's you know maybe that's what the that's probably where the toxic masculinity element uh comes in is this is all just one big boys club and the female characters are you know in the background but anyway there's a lot of ideas there and i think that the movie does an incredibly great job of of conveying all of them particularly in this last chapter after jimmy hoffa has died and frank you know, has to come to terms with the fact that, you know, he, this life that he chose, right, this life that he chose over his family ultimately was unfulfilling and ultimately led him to kill his friend, right? Like, what did it all build to? What did these relationships that he, you know, cultivated build to? They built to a moment where in the blink of an eye, he had to shoot his friend and that was it. I mean, it happened so suddenly, right? Like, it, it within seconds, like yep. you're you're waiting for it to happen, but Pacino runs to the door and he just shoots him right there, and that's it. And that is that is what the whole movie has built up to. That is what this whole life that he has chosen has built up to is this split second where he kills his friend and it, and presumably cho- his closest friend if he's having him get right. the award, or at least his closest mentor. Right, because I mean he's really the only person who sticks with Jimmy through everything. Um, but yeah, so so he cho- he he realizes that he's chosen that instead of choosing to have a fulfilling life with his family. Uh, and the result is that, you know, his daughter won't speak to him, ignores him when he goes to the bank uh, and he's left alone there in that hospital room. And it's haunting and beautiful and, you know, cine- cinema, <laughs> cinema. Yeah. No, I, I think that it, the final act of the film as abbreviated as it is compared to the rest of it is definitely, like I mentioned before, is the most interesting. He's doing the most interesting things you know everything after that climax, including the including that climactic scene. I think to your point, it's it's simultaneously so slowly built up to, but so rushed in its execution, uh, and and that is purposeful. I mean, that Scorsese is very intentional 
with the way that is done and you realize you know just how quickly things things can change in in this world that Frank Sheeran has constructed that is entirely built around whether you call it a good old boys club you know whatever you call it it's built around this house of cards that is sort of like the their own self importance right this idea that Frank telling his other daughter, right, that like, oh, I, everything that I did, I did to protect my family. Everything I did is to protect you guys. And, and to think that that is like that life is what like, that life was required in order to protect them. You know, as soon as, you know, that the dialogue in that scene kind of takes place, I'm immediately thinking about like, yeah, he did all those things to protect his family. He went over to, you know, the local grocer and curb stomped the guy because that's what his family needed to be protected. No, that's not what his family needed. To be protected, no. But that's his version of being a man and, and you know standing up for your family and being yeah. protective of your family and that and to your point look at where that led that led him that led him down a life of being you know being detached from his family you know both not you know not just leaving his first wife which is brushed over so casually that you know it feels awkward in the in the moment that's brushed over so casually but it's so intentional too because it just doesn't matter to him it doesn't matter to him at all right um, and that's what i mean his one daughter tells him that towards the end of the movie too, you know, she says like, we couldn't tell you anything, right? Because we were afraid of what you would do. And that, that grocery scene exemplifies that. Uh, again, he, he, th part of it is he thinks he's living in, in secrecy, but you know, his daughter sees everything. She knows basically everything. She's like this omniscient figure again. Um, and she knows the man that he's chosen to become. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, I, I agree with that. And he thinks, he thinks that what he's doing is, is noble that he, you know, if he didn't do it, he wouldn't be the the father that, that his family and the husband that his wife needs, needs him to be. And he's just, so, it's just so misguided uh, around what his family needs and so steeped in, you know, gender norms or stereotypes that are attributable to this idea of toxic masculinity, which you know, this movie absolutely tries to explore. And I think in that final act, it does explore it well. And it, and it ties together a lot of those things that you're seeing happen, whether it's that grocer scene, you know, whatever it might be going forward. I mean, you see it so much in Al Pacino's character, Jimmy Hoffa too, uh, especially with his relationship with pro and his stubbornness is the, the Tony pro character. Uh, and it's, it's, it's toxic, right? You see it steep into everything around him. Uh, even though Al Pacino is, uh, that Jimmy Hoffa character is meant as a as a sort of a foil to Russell Buffalino, especially in the eyes of Peggy, who has a very good relationship with with Jimmy Hoffa. But obviously, that relationship that you're describing with her father and and with Russell. But even even in in Jimmy Hoffa's character, you see that toxic masculinity appear itself in different ways. And you know, no one is is redeemable uh, from that specific perspective. And I think that. It, that is an interesting and telling thing about that as well. I, I'm not sure if I have much more thoughtful contributions to add in terms of that topic. But again, I, I think that one of the things that I liked that wasn't necessarily the full reflection, but those, you know, those couple scenes that you get in the nursing home, I guess, no, 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 it's not a nursing home, in jail, right? In jail with, uh, between, you know, Frank and, yeah, I guess uh, and is, Russell. Yeah, yeah Frank and, and Russell and, and a couple other the people, of course, that were a part of the inner circle. I think those scenes are like really build into that ultimate reflection where you had that reflection start now that you're in jail and you're not doing, you know, what you were doing for your entire life. You realize, uh, or you at least you're going to have to either question what you did to that led you there or really reinforce those beliefs. And I think that's an interesting, if not under 
slightly undercooked component because I think, I, again, I could have used a little bit more because I thought that that portion was so interesting and so engaging to me. Uh, yes, you get more of that from the specific De Niro perspective uh, in the final 10 minutes where it, it really is just his character in that nursing home. But I think I would have liked a little bit more from Russell as well. But that's the nature of Russell's character, right? He's He is acting behind the scenes uh, and getting and, and using his moments for high impact um, moments sparingly that that ma that matter a lot and, and definitely impacted me a lot. But the the last 20, 30 minutes, again, to kind of sum things up here, were the best parts of the film for me, were the most interesting parts of the film for me. And I and I just wish that that maybe I don't know. I don't know if it would have been better, but I wish that that could have been brought more explicitly into the earlier parts of the film. Uh, just just to track that thread a little bit more easily uh, than you get to the end of the film and you look back at all these events because that is effective. But when you have a three and a half hour movie, it, it's I, it is tough to get all the way through that without that without that more explicit threat, I think. Well, I mean, I think it's there to just to push back a little bit. I think it's there. I think it's just there in the context of the Hoffa character more than it is of Frank. Uh, and so I think a lot of, you know, what we see at the end is him sort of contrasting his arc with Hoffa and maybe thinking that he's different from Jimmy, but discovering that maybe he isn't really that different and that, um, both of them have ended up sort of alienated and alone in their latter years. So I think the themes are there throughout. Maybe it's just that Frank himself doesn't come to terms with them until the end because he has to go to jail, right? He, he, he has to go to jail. He has to think back on his life and he has to uh, reevaluate a lot of circumstances before he can really, um, you know, feel the regret that he should have felt all along. Yeah. I think, I think that's probably fair. Um, I think part of what I was saying was more steeped in, in getting a little bit more from those female characters. But when you have a movie that's so laser focused from the perspective of Frank Sheeran, you can look back and say, it made sense why you're getting, you're getting less from those. And I know that I mentioned that already, so we don't need to. Yeah. Well, that. And I will say just to put a bow on that point, you know, cause you mentioned it earlier, the, yeah. The fact that people have criticized the depiction of female characters, I think it's ludicrous. Like, you know, we talked about the same thing with uh, with Once Upon, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, and people counting the uh, minutes or whatever that Margot Robbie was on screen as if that could possibly sum up what her contribution to the film was. And of course, people are going to do the same thing here and point out the fact that Anna Paquin has only one or two lines in the movie. Um, and but, you know, to go back to what you said, that is the point. If if the movie was different, then it's what it's trying to say would be completely compromised, I think, um, because we are seeing the whole thing through Frank's eyes. Right. This is Frank telling the story. And these people were not characters in Frank's story. They were, you know, they were the wallpaper. They were just there. Um, and so that's what we are seeing. Uh, we are not seeing Scorsese's view of women. When we watch this movie, we are seeing Frank's view of the women in his life. And so it's it's absolutely Frank is Scorsese, though. Yeah, it's absolutely necessary. And at the moments when these uh, female characters do speak, it's incredibly powerful. Um, like Anna Paquin's one or two lines are powerful. That scene with him and the other daughter at the end where, you know, we, we fully see the like Frank just doesn't get it. And she he, he says, I'm sorry, as if you know, and, and his daughter just kind of like incredulously laughs through her tears because there's nothing he can do at this point. Like, sorry, cannot begin to cover up what he, you know, put them through in their lives. Um, and so, you know, again, we're seeing it through Frank's eyes and 
the moments when he does choose to make these people players in his story um, are incredibly powerful. So I think that that criticism is absolutely unfounded. Yeah, I think if you were to add more, I guess, perspective, like female perspective in this film, you'd have to remove it from the eyes of Frank, right? Yeah, like, right. You'd have like you'd have to no longer be telling the story only from Frank's perspective. Which, to be fair, the whole movie isn't entirely from Frank's perspective. You get a lot of not a lot, but you get a you get a considerable number of scenes just from Hoffa's perspective in prison, etc. But the, and the story is meant to be this very male centric story exploring toxic masculinity for a reason. Right. So there you go. Yeah. All right. Anything else, or should we enter our wrap up phase? Yeah, we can do it. All right, Scott. Favorite scene from The Irishman. You've there's got a lot so, to choose there's from. There's so many, right? Like, yeah, there's there's billions of scenes. But one thing we didn't billions. talk about was uh, was the fact that this movie is pretty funny, right? Like, there's some good comedy in places. Um, and one scene that I really uh, got got a good chuckle out of, and you know, it we I talked about this scene and how it you know it does get at the theme, right? That that Pacino is this tired old man who you know is out of touch with the world but uh it's also a funny scene when he first meets up with tony and is trying to ask him uh for his endorsement um for to to become president of the teamsters union once again um and you know there's been tension between them they got in a fight in prison and so that tension is sort of looming over the scene um and out you know during the prison fight scene Pacino has kind of made a, a implicit racial slur by saying you people about um, about this Tony character who is Italian. Of course, Jimmy is not. Um, and uh, and and basically Tony wants him to apologize for saying that before he will give him the endorsement. And Pacino can't do it. He literally can't do it. Um, even in the moment where you think for a second he's going to be able to bring himself to do it. And then all of a sudden just blurts out like these horrible insults at um, at Tony and, uh, you know, a fight starts to break out between the two of them. And um, it's, you know, it's a it's a I mean, it's sad in a way, the scene, because, again, it gets at at Hoffa's character being so out of touch. But it's funny, too. And there's there's comedy throughout just in the personalities of these three guys and particularly the, you know, larger than life. Um, showy personality of Jimmy Hoffa. Um, and so I'll give a shout out to that scene, though, as I've mentioned, I think the last 30 minutes and particularly that um, last shot and the scene with De Niro on the phone with uh, Joe Hoffa, um, so many others. Um, but I mean, it, even, you know, the whole the whole scene leading up to Hoffa's death, I mean, the we get we we see the whole car ride to pick up Jimmy Hoff. We see the whole car ride back to the house, and then you know he goes in, and in an instant it's over. Um, everything is building up to this moment that, again, happens in a split second. Um, and so the, again, there's there's dozens of other scenes that I could mention too, but those are just some of the ones that come to mind. Yeah, like so several other films that you know we've had a hard time I think picking particular scenes or moments out of. This is a movie that. It seems to all run together at some point because of the epic narrative that it's telling. Of course, it covers a long period of time, but it's woven together so expertly that yeah. it's hard to sometimes yeah. distinguish. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but for me, you know, I've talked about the last 20 minutes being so interesting. And so it, it would feel wrong to go anywhere else. And so I, I think that some of those, the the particular scene where he's with his daughter, that's not Peggy. I forget the other daughter's name, but that daughter um, he's having that conversation with and, and just you realize that even in his old age, even after all this reflection, he still doesn't get it. Um, I think that that scene just really sticks out for me and the emotional impact that it had. And, and finally, you know, 
really starting to dig into those parts of the movie that I, again, that I was most interested in. Um, you know, I, I had done, done the hard work, if that is the right way to put it, of, of making it through the first three hours, although it is, you know, again, incredible filmmaking, but you really get, you really getting that payoff in the final 20 minutes. And so that was, I think that scene captures that payoff in a lot of ways that, you know, we've already discussed here at length. Absolutely. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. What are you giving the Irishman? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think it's perfect, but as you said, <laughs> no, because it's three and a half hours. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have to be perfect or it doesn't have to be perfect to get a 10. Um, and I think this movie is just such an embarrassment of riches that uh, I would be remiss if I gave it anything less than that. So perfect score, 10 out of 10. I will continue to be the spoil sport on tens yeah. uh, for us. But, you know, maybe uh, a movie that I've seen already that you have not seen yet that we will review at a da- later date might get a 10 for me. I'm still thinking about it. But Secret this one Obsession. Won't. Yeah, Secret Obsession. Check out my review on Letterboxd to my half star review on Letterboxd of that incel fodder. Uh, no, I'm giving it an 8.5. I, li- I do think that this movie could have cut 45 minutes out and told the same story. All right, Scott, that should do it for our discussion of The Irishman. Sometimes I like to joke that our discussions are as long as the movies we're discussing, but in this case, we come in well short, thank God. Uh, Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing a little sneak peek of award season as nominations have begun to trickle in for certain award shows, including the Indie Spirit Awards and what was the LAOFCS Awards, but it's now the Hollywood Critics Association Awards, the HCA Awards. Uh, We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, as you mentioned before the break, we are going to be going through some awards uh, nominations that have come out in the past week or so. Um, with this p- portion of the year being somewhat light on news and trailers, um, we are going to try to use this second half of the show, the second uh, segment of the show for the next few weeks to highlight some of the uh, various awards nominations that are coming out Um and we're going to start by doing that with a couple that you mentioned uh, before the break, the Indie Spirit Awards and the Hollywood Critics Association. Um, we'll start with the the LA OCF FCS or, or the, what is now known as the uh, Hollywood the HCA Spirit. Awards. <laughs> yes. Um, we this is this is one that, you know, won't be on a lot of people's radar because it is, you know, it's a specific crowd. It is the online film critics based out of Los Angeles. But um Scott, it catches our eye because we do happen to follow a lot of critics from that space. Um, yep. I, I listen to movie talk almost every day. Right. From Collider and, and some other places. Um, yeah. So so this is something that caught my eye for that reason. Um, and your best picture nominations um, from the the Hollywood Critics Association uh, are 1917, the Sam Mendes war drama. Literally Book, cannot wait for that one. Booksmart, uh, Lulu Wang's The Farewell, The Irishman, Joker. Jojo Rabbit, Parasite, Marriage Story, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Trey Edward Schultz's Waves. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, a big crop of nominees there. Scott, several several movies that we've seen and um, a few that, you know, we were going to catch up with. Mm-hmm. I know that like three or four of my favorite movies of the year are in there. Uh, yeah. Four of my top ten, I think, are in there right now. So it's it's a, it's a solid list. Uh, any surprises or snubs uh, from this list? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I always have a harder time thinking of snubs, but I'll see if I can wreck my brain for it in a second <laughs> as I talk about my surprise. And that the surprise is book smart. I mean, I'm over the moon that it, it, it got a nomination because I'm just a little bit surprised. But I mean, this movie is the film that I've watched and rewatched the, the most this year. And it's for a reason, right? This movie is it just it, it doesn't lose any quality on, on a rewatch. And I think there are just so few movies that are like that and it speaks to the endearing nature of the film but also the endearing quality of the film as well both in terms of the performances and also the story and the way in which the story is told i uh, i absolutely loved it and uh, i know mo most if not everyone uh that i've convinced to watch this movie has also really enjoyed it um i can think of one exception but even then it wasn't like they disliked the movie just we're lukewarm on it that's fine but in terms of in terms of snubs i think you know, I, I guess, you know, one of the things that comes to mind that I'm going to say an annoying number of times over the course of awards, season, I'm sure, is that I am disappointed that Avengers Endgame doesn't get a nomination. I think that it is an outstanding uh, film by itself. I just wish that um, I just wish that it, it could be seen for the standalone movie that I think that it is. Of course, it's a culmination of 22 other movies. And so it's or 21 other movies, whatever it was before Endgame. Um, and, and so by it, it, it does, you know, owe something to those first movies in terms of the emotional impact that it can have. But I still think it's such a great standalone movie. And, and I'm not going to sit here and say it's better than individual movies. And so therefore deserves uh, deserves to be on this list. But it is better than Joker. Sorry, guys. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so from that standpoint, I, I do think Endgame's a snub. I, I do also think that, like you, Midsommar not getting on this list is a bit of a disappointment. Although I think that's more of a disappointment on a list that we have yet to talk about yet. The Indie Spirit Awards, a little mm -hmm. bit surprised not to see it there. Uh, not as uh, surprised to not see it here. Uh, I haven't seen, you know, there's a couple movies on this list that you mentioned. You know, I, I think I've seen about half these movies. Uh, obviously, 1917 has not gotten a wide release yet. Uh, but, uh, you know, ha having not seen Jojo Rabbit yet, though, something I plan to remedy uh, by the end of Thanksgiving week, uh, still haven't seen Waves either. But I've seen the rest of these crop and uh, it's really strong. I, I don't think I have too many complaints. If, if this were ultimately the list that got nominated for Best Picture at the Oscar, I don't think that I'd be too disappointed. I mean, I recognize that there are people out there. In fact, a lot of people out there that like Joker a lot more than I did and a lot more than you did. Uh, and so if it gets a nomination, I won't. Uh, I won't be too upset if the right movies are also getting nominations alongside it. And then ultimately, of course, if it doesn't win best picture, which I don't, I don't expect it to, but um, yeah, we'll see. I don't know, Scott, what do you, what do you think of this crop? Yeah, I think this is, you know, a pretty solid bunch. Um, you know, definitely several movies that I expected to see in there, I guess uh, if I'm looking at uh, a snub or two, I mean, Ford versus Ferrari uh, is probably one that I, I kind of thought might have snuck in there. Little Women, um, another one that um, may maybe just not enough people had seen Little Women yet. That that could be some of the issue because it has had some screenings. But um, yeah, I would have thought that would have also applied in 1917 though because it's had true. Y yes, its major screening has happened. So maybe I don't know if Little Women's main screen has happened at the time that these nominations were being voted on. But there, I mean, uh, those movies have similar release dates and that they are very late in, in the year. Yeah, but I think that most of these will be in play for the Oscars. I think that Booksmart, Joker, and Waves are probably the ones which will ultimately be on the outside looking in at the Oscars. Um, I definitely think Joaquin Phoenix is going to get nominated, but I don't know if Joker is going to make the crop for Best Picture. And I, I don't, and I also wonder if to to this point around, you know, I think the farewell might also be on on the bubble. I just don't think enough people are talking about that movie. 
still anymore. Like, I just don't know anyone who's still talking about that film. And I think Jojo Rabbit's what well, I think Jojo Rabbit might be on the bubble too. In that, like, yeah. I, I think it got a little bit more lukewarm reviews from people, but I don't know if you have a different perspective on that considering I, think, I haven't seen Jojo Rabbit. I think Jojo Rabbit's going to make it in. It did get somewhat lukewarm reviews, but it's a crowd pleaser like Green Book, which also got lukewarm reviews. And it's um, Fox, it's Fox Searchlight. So, I mean, right. they almost always uh, I think Jojo's going to make it in. I think the farewell has a good shot as well. I think that, um, even though it's an independent movie, even though it came out earlier in the year, I do think people are still talking about it. And it's a movie that the people who really love it, it has sat with them a lot. And it yeah. speaks to universal themes like family um, that I think any, any viewer is going to glean something from. And, mm-hmm. you know, on a, from a cynical level, uh, the Oscars are obviously very conscious about diversity uh, or they need to be very conscious about diversity um, with some of the gaffes they've made in recent years. And so they may look to the farewell for, uh, reasons like that, but book smart. I feel I, like I feel like that that with the farewell though. Like, how conscious is the Oscars of like Asian American representation? Though I don't know if that's like that. I think that applies to certain minorities. I just don't know if it applies to this minority. Well, I mean, then the, you have to ask the same question about Parasite. Then I guess I mean, it, it has that movie transcended um, enough to where it's going to be in in the minds of the viewers for best picture. Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, the foreign language film nature of it, I think, is a card against it, uh, just in terms of people putting, you know, putting their eyes on and actually watching the film. But if I had to, if, if you told me that only one the, of the farewell and Parasite were going to get nominated for Best Picture, I think I'd probably choose Parasite. I just yeah, feel like more people it. are talking about that. Yeah, I mean, I think Parasite is this year's Roma, right? Like it's from an established director and it is a movie that... Um, you know, again, has transcended the like traditional movie audience, people outside of the audience that would normally see foreign films are seeing this film. And like, no one, no one has a bad thing to to say about Parasite that I've seen. Like, I I can barely remember a movie in in recent years that has been that people have been so uniformly positive about. Um, I mean, I don't know how the particular voting works for something like the, you know, HCA awards here. But obviously, we talked a lot last year a little bit later on than this, but about how Green Book, you know, could potentially win and did win the Oscar. And that's because maybe it wasn't number one on anyone's list, but it got two or three on almost everyone's list. And so is Parasite the type of movie that if it does make it, you know, onto the ballot uh, for these awards, like it has at the HCA, is it one of those things where like, maybe no one's putting it number one on their list because so many people have few bad things to say about it, but is it getting high enough on everyone's list where it could actually pull off an upset? I think the answer to that question is no. But I think it's an interesting conversation to have. Yeah, and, and elsewhere, I mean, I think Booksmart and Waves are not going to make it in. Booksmart is a comedy, um, and and a coming of age comedy of that. Um, and it's I, Anna, Anna Perna who did so well with Vice last year. That well, yeah, I, and I well, it did get nominated for Best Picture, but um, yeah, didn't come close to winning. What won one award? I I don't think that this movie has like the depth of Lady Bird, which obviously was able to cross over to and get a Best Picture nomination. And A24. Yes. And speaking of A24, Waves, uh, I think it's just too small of a movie, right? Like, I think that even though it is A24, that we've seen bigger A24 releases this year, like The Farewell. Well, I was going to say, The Farewell is going to get A24's full effort and support, which is why, I mean, probably why Midsommar is not on either of these lists, is that A24 is backing other movies. So... Yeah, but even if you just think about what movies have been talked about from A24 this year, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously The Farewell, obviously yeah. Midsommar, even The Last Black Man in San Francisco has felt, I feel like, has been talked about perhaps more than 
um, Waves has. But that's also because it hasn't come out in a lot. I was going to say Waves is coming out this week, this weekend. Yeah. Well, I'm interested to see it though because yeah, I'm a too. big fan of Kelvin Harrison Jr. So and Taylor um, Russell is getting yes. widespread praise. I saw her. I so I watched Escape Room a couple months ago, not when it came out, of course, mm-hmm. in January, but was you know she caught my attention in that, and so I'm really excited to see Waves uh, as well because I think it came out in Boston last weekend, but just missed it. A couple other things catching my eye, Scott, scanning the other categories. Yeah. Uh, Taron Egerton getting in for Best Actor for his role in, in Rocket Man, which is a bit surprising. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shia LaBeouf getting a nomination for Honey Boy uh, for, in the Best Supporting Actor car- category. I haven't seen Honey Boy, uh, but I mean, I would I, I would have thought he was in, would have been in contention for the Peanut Butter Falcon. Uh, he was uh, great in that movie, too. In a I think film. Honey Boy is getting much better critical. Like I know Peter Butter Falcon did well, don't get me wrong critically, but Honey Boy is being praised pretty pretty much for both him and Lucas. Less so Lucas Hedges, but particularly his role. Hmm. Okay. Uh, but then the one that's, that really sort of surprised me was Marco Robbie getting in for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Again, that yeah. nine-minute performance. I mean, I think she gives a you know a really, yeah, a really watch. great performance in those nine minutes. But the best supporting actress category is really strong this year. I was just going through my list of movies um, the other day and thinking about uh, preliminarily who who I might favor in uh, some of these categories. And I, you know, there were a lot of names which immediately sprung to mind in the uh, in the best supporting actress category. Obviously, who were the ones were- that you thought got left off the most besides? Well- well, okay, so I mean, I, I don't know that this is someone that necessarily I thought would have snuck in there, but like Billy Lord is someone who obviously came to my mind pretty That's quickly for Booksmart. Um, I also thought that the actress who played the mother in Parasite um, Which was, mother? Was, was potentially in contention. The mother of the rich family. Um, okay. Yeah, and I mean, j- just like, again, some of these aren't ones that I would have necessarily thought would have snuck in there, but like, from my own perspective, like I loved Octavia Spencer and Naomi Watts in Loose. Um, I thought Rebecca Ferguson was fantastic in Doctor Sleep. I thought Olivia Coleman was great in Them That Follow. I mean, that one never would have made it in there. But I haven't uh, seen that one, but it is on my list to watch. I just think that this is such a two horse race between J Lo and Laura Dern. Yeah, like I, I just don't see anyone anyone else even getting in the conversation with them right now. Yeah, and, and I think you know that right now those are probably the two at the top. I. I do think that that Zhao Sujin has a good chance of at least getting the nomination for the farewell. Um, But I mean, I mean, I don't know how are the bombshell actresses running? Like Charlize is nominated here for best actress. Um, Yeah. But it's like, is it is, I guess I just don't know where they're being pushed. Are they, are the other two are, um, are Nicole Kidman and I mean Margot's Margot Robbie Margot's getting pushed for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood probably I would guess yeah but more, they're different studios so they're they're pushing they're pushing I guess that's places. true yeah um I'm just saying like are are they missing out in supporting or are they missing out in, in best I'd say those are probably going to be the supporting that that Nicole Kidman and Margot are going to be supporting just because like yeah. um Charlize is playing like the most well known figure, right? When Megan Kelly, um, and sure. so I think. But Nicole Kidman, the trailers looks like the main, like the lead yeah. actress in the movie. Perhaps um, I, I just don't know enough to know how they're. Yeah. Because um, she's playing Gretchen Carlson, I think. Yes, yes. Uh, a few other interesting things here, Scott. They do yeah. a separate category for best male director and best female director, which I guess is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, 
you know, best female director with some heavy hitters this year uh, between Greg Gerwig, Lorene Scafaria, Lulu Wang, and Olivia Wilde all getting on there, and Alma mm-hmm. Harrell for Honey Boy. Um, one category I liked was the best performance by an actor or actress 23 or under. Um, and we had best rising star from the BAFTA Awards, basically. Yeah, we had Caitlin Deaver in there. We had Julia Butters, and we had both Roman Griffin, Roman Griffin Davis, and Thomas and McKenzie from Jojo Rabbit, which I was excited about. Um, I think I'd give that one slightly to Thomason, but they were all great. Breakthrough performance, another better, cool better than Julia Butters. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, so. Uh, she she's got more screen time than Julia Butters too, for sure. Um, screen time doesn't matter, dude. <laughs> it does to me. Um, okay. Good to know. Breakthrough performance um, is another cool one. You got Jesse Buckley in there for Wild Rose, Kelvin Harrison Jr. for Waves, yeah. Paul Walter Hauser for Richard Jewell, and uh, Zach Gottsagen for the Peanut Butter Falcon. So um, that's cool. Avengers Endgame is did get in there for uh, Best Ensemble, ensemble. Cast. Yeah. And then one last one I want to highlight just because it caught my eye. Uh, they have a lot of genre categories, which I don't really like that they do that, but um the best horror category we have crawl dr sleep midsummer ready or not and us and just looking at that list of nominees i was like good year for horror because all five of those movies are bangers so um yep yeah no uh exciting exciting stuff there and uh you know remains to be seen what will come out on top but uh Mm -hmm. An interesting preview, perhaps, for the Oscars. Turning, perhaps, to... Yeah, well, I was going to say, do we want to... So you said each one of the next couple of weeks we want to talk about awards. Do we want to save the Spirit Awards for, for next week's podcast? Or do we know if there are more nominations are being released between now and when we record our next episode? I think there will probably be more. Uh, I think there will be a lot uh, okay. just coming out in the weeks. Other film critics, society, stuff like that. Sure. Um, we can hit these pretty quickly, I think. The Indie Spirit Awards... Um, some is you know not really perhaps going to be a good predictor of the Oscars. Um, perhaps but not. Something that of course we wanted to pay attention to because we do review a lot of independent films and a lot of our favorite movies this year are indie films. Getting in there for Best Picture, uh, a Hidden Life, which is the Terrence Malick film. Okay, so I saw the trailer for this before Mar- I saw Marriage Story, uh-huh. and oh my god, it looks like such a boring movie. Yeah, well, that's kind of Terrence Malick's uh, MO. So, um, yeah. the, this, like, the story of the movie looks like it would be interesting to me, but knowing that Malick's behind it definitely dampens my interest. So. <laughs> yeah, I um, might see I it. Just it's not top I just my don't list. get his movies. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Clemency, which is something that is rocketing up my list, um, it's the Alfre Woodard drama. Um, about the death penalty, uh, mm-hmm. the fair, the farewell marriage story, and then uncut gems. Um, maybe a little bit of a surprise getting in there. Another A twenty four. I thought it was more of a surprise that it didn't get on to the HCA awards list anywhere. Yeah, even no, Sam, did Sandler get nominated uh, at the Indie Spirit Awards or no? no he, at the HCA, I don't, I don't think he did. Um, yeah, so H- that's a bit of a surprise that he got cut for. You know, I mean, we were talking about some of the performances that well, the yeah. best actor category. There was a couple surprises there. So. Yeah, but the Safety brothers getting that last nomination there for their movie. Um, best director, Robert Eggers getting in there for The Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. Julius Ona getting in there for Loose, which I was really happy yeah, to awesome. see. Um, yeah. Safety brothers, Lorraine Scafaria, you know, some of the ones you would have expected to get in there. Booksmart getting a nomination for Best First Feature. 
um, which, you know, is pretty cool. Something that caught my eye was that Terrell Alvin McCraney snuck in the best screenplay category for uh, High Flying Bird, a movie we saw way back at the start of the year, but were uh, impressed with the screenplay at that time. Um, so good on good on the uh, Indie Spirit Awards for not forgetting about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, a lot of performances in these female and male lead categories, which um, are, are very much off of my radar, a lot from movies that I haven't seen. Um, but Kelvin Harrison Jr. did get in there for Loose. Um, Sandler, of course, for Uncut Gems and Robert Pattinson for The Lighthouse. Um, so kind of, so, so, some interesting hitters there in the in that category that we probably won't see at the Oscars. Um, I think the only one who would have a slight chance is Sandler, but I, I don't know whether he's going to get in or whether enough people are going to see this movie. Moving down the list. List Octavia Spencer did get in there for loose, which is cool. Um, Shia LaBeouf again nominated for um, Honey Boy. Also Noah Jupe, who was uh, in at least one category at the HCA as well, and Willem Dafoe for The Lighthouse. Interesting that it seems like Pattinson is getting the lead here, and Dafoe is getting the supporting. Obviously, have the you Lighthouse seen it? Did, did you see it? I've not. I've not seen it yet. Um, yeah, I'm trying to see it, but it it does seem like it's that the two of them are on screen for about the same amount of time. But um, Jonathan Major is also getting in there for uh, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Uh, I think the unfortunate thing about these awards, and I was listening to the Snyder Cut, Jeff Snyder's podcast on Collider, and the way that he puts it, I always think he has really hot takes, but I think he might be right on this one, is that just like, no one like really cares about the indie spirit awards that much. Like they're fun to have like the night before the Oscars because they're mostly going to be recognizing and intentionally. So movies that the Oscars are going to ignore rightfully or wrongfully, right? Like they're, you know, some, some of them will deserve, should have probably will end up deserving more attention at the Oscars. Some of them won't, but I mean, you're, you're going through these lists and talking about your surprises that they're being nominated, but the indie spirit awards are like kind of this bit where like, you know what? These are like, we're nominating them because they're good in like niche in like a movie that we think that most people won't have seen. And so we'll nominate them for that reason. And there's nothing wrong with that. Let me be really clear. Like you have your own prerogative as, a, as a particular society of voting critics. But I also like recently looked up who the voting critics are for the indie spirit awards. And it's like, it's not even people who cover film. It's like people who make indie movies. So it's like, that makes sense, right? I'm not, I'm not hitting the awards for that, but it also makes sense you know who you have yeah. voting on, on these on these words like basically anyone who's like in produ- like who's a producer or like member of any sort of indie movie that's been filmed over a certain period of time yeah no that's that's an interesting uh point to note there i guess my yeah. you know main main disappointments here obviously midsummer only getting one yeah. nomination for best cinematography um which obviously it deserved that but um even though this is a genre movie i would have thought the indie spirit awards would be a little bit above that, um, you know, excluding genre movies. Um, yeah, I can't believe it, they left off Avengers Endgame. Well, uh, <laughs> but but my point is that this was one of the most talked about indie movies of the year, Midsommar, uh, genre film or not. Um, it was probably, yeah, it, it was definitely up there in terms of uh, a movie that I think did reach somewhat of an audience outside of uh, people who would normally see indie films and had a lot of people talking about um you know, the themes and everything in the movie. So I'm surprised that uh, it, you know, maybe not necessarily that it made it in there, didn't make it in there for best picture, but maybe that we didn't see uh, Ari Aster get a nomination um, mm. or Florence Pugh get a nomination for best actress. Like those would have been the categories, which I would have expected to see it. 
Um, yeah, I guess I, I didn't see that conversation as much as you did. And I wonder if that's just because you were like, you dove real deep on the film and got really into it. I think people were talking about this film, um, but yeah, but I'm just saying like no one, no one's still talking about it. Well, yeah, it came out in July, but um, I, I'm well, just saying, like people are, people are still talking about some of these, some of the movies there. I, right? I think like, people are still talking about Midsommar in terms of like their best of lists. Like I've seen it pop up on, um, or, you know, talked about in preliminary um, in, in people talking about their best of lists. I know it's going to show up on a lot of lists. David Ehrlich was posting, his like screenshots from his video, you know, his top 25 video that he always makes like mm-hmm. teasing it. And one of his screenshots was Midsommar. So I know it's going to be in there for him. A bunch of other critics gave it like five star reviews and stuff. So I'm sure they're going to have it in there. Um, so I think people are still talking about this movie. Um, right. I guess I'm sorry. I should have been more clear. I think like my point is that it's not, that it's not whether or not people are, are still talking about it, but like you have like four of the five best features here are movies that haven't come out yet besides like the farewell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, so maybe the release date hurt it some, but sure. Sure. And I think that's true for best director as well. When you have, uh, yeah. Okay. Loose maybe being the exception, but like hustlers is a very recent release. Uncut gems hasn't come out. Honey boy hasn't come out. Lighthouse just came out. Like these are all movies that are very much in the forefront of consciousness. And I think maybe even more so than we normally see. Well, that's not true. Oscars is always biased, but um, we're seeing a lot of recent, recent release bias here when you have strong movies from the beginning of the year yeah so i mean i guess the main disappointment is pew not getting in there for for best actors i mean you do have like elizabeth moss getting in there for her, her smell which was came out in like february or march so um i would have thought moss. i, I just don't get that. it i haven't seen her do anything amazing i don't know i people are like really hyped about elizabeth moss but i'm not on board yet i guess church of scientology is very hype about her um <laughs> Also, Jesse Buckley, nowhere in sight um, in Best Female Lead either, which also disappointing because she handled prob- the Indie Spirit Awards. They are sexist. Probably my front runner for uh, Best Actress right now. But um, on your personal list, or do you think she actually stands a chance again? On actress? my per- on my personal list. On okay. Yeah. List. Um, in in the in a, in my dream world, she would actually have a chance, but I don't think she does. But uh, just to prove that the Indie Spirit Awards aren't sexist, they are giving out what is known as the annual Bonnie Award. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the purpose of the award is, but it seems like to honor female artists. Uh, but it is going to go to Marielle Heller, Kelly Reichert, and Lulu Wang this year. So that's kind of cool. Um, all right, Scott, that should just about do it, I think, for our awards discussion um, and for our episode. I think you want to close this out. Absolutely, Scott. That will do it for episode 66. You're absolutely right. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? All right, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? I am at Scarby Dent. Awesome. And I'm at S Shelton 2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at, at Media Plug Pods. We'd love it even more, however, if you checked out our podcast Patreon page. That's at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods, where there are a bunch of different reward tiers, depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge the podcast. Uh, we'd appreciate it if you could check us out, even at the one dollar level helps us. Again, www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. Check it out for yourself. Pick the tier that's right for you. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, though, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Podbean and on Spotify, where we'd hope that you can rate, rate and review us, subscribe, share, all that jazz. I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. And we'll be back next week with our review of one of Scott's and my mutually most anticipated films of the year. I feel like we could say that every week at this point in the movie release calendar. But that's Ryan Johnson's first film since The Last Jedi, Knives Out. Until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.